You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. And welcome to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. You know, there's so many places to find great, uh, great, great podcasts these days, and I'm used to this old school way. It's amazing that you can all do that, but our favorite place, of course, is HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and we're really proud to be part of this team of uh, really amazing shows. And uh, we have an amazing, speaking of amazing shows, we have an amazing show for you today. Uh, tonight we are... Uh podcasting and recording live from the NYC Ferments Meetup Group, where there are a bunch of people from all over the New York City area who have come down to share ferments with each other uh, each month based on a fun theme. And tonight's theme is uh, called Pickles as Parts. The meetup happens every Monday night at Fifth Hammer Brewing Company. Uh, it's been, it's, it's about... Five no, years old? First is First Monday of every sorry, month. First Monday of every month. Every month, first Mondays. So kinds of meals and foods and other ferments that are derived from ferments. So we've had some, we have some kimchi pancakes. We have some salads with fermented corn. Uh, we have some crackers sprinkled with pickles, all kinds of stuff like that. Can I have your name and what you brought for us today? Sure, my name is Joey Romano uh, and I brought some hot sauce cookies with me today. Yeah, uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, those cookies are great. Um, when I was... Yeah, we, when we were doing the check-in, um, you said hot sauce, but I saw cookies, and I was very confused. <laughs> um, so why did you bring hot sauce cookies? So uh, the theme of this month was pickle as part. So I harped for like several weeks on what to actually make for this, and finally I looked in my fridge, and I'm like, what do I have that I can use? And uh, I found my hot sauce. I, I've made like half a dozen hot sauces that I brought to one of the previous meetings. I rate... I ranked them all in terms of spiciness and like named them and brought them in and um, uh, then I went online and searched for recipes involving hot sauce and I scrolled down until I found something that wasn't boring and I was like okay hot sauce chocolate chip cookies that sounds great so tell me how you made the hot sauce chocolate chip cookies that you made uh, it's pretty straightforward uh, I actually combined a, a vegan chocolate chip recipe with the recipe I found for the hot sauce uh, chocolate chips so they're uh, they're actually vegan yeah uh, so uh, it's just a ton of sugar uh, some coconut oil uh, a little bit of salt uh, baking soda baking powder um, obviously flour um, that's that's the majority of it some some vanilla do you use so instead of using eggs do you use a different kind of binder uh, there was really nothing else besides what I said. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's the, the coconut oil is probably the closest thing to it. Uh, it they were very um, sort of uh, loose when they were uh, coming out of the oven, but once they dried, they were pretty solid. And they're very chewy, and they have like a great texture because of that. 
I'm, I'm glad they do because I was a little bit worried about that. <laughs> now, um, like it's a pretty normal batch of cookies that you made. How much hot sauce did you put in it? Uh, about three tablespoons. Uh, and it's, uh, it, the hot sauce that I used was made with chocolate habaneros uh, from my coworker's father-in-law's garden. He's Jamaican and he makes, he, he, uh, they're, they're very hot and like sort of smoky tasting. And um, I made like, a uh, the, the hot sauce was pretty delicious. So I figured that one was a good amount of spicy, so it would have a kick to it. Um, and uh, it had this sort of campfire flavor that I was hoping that would go well with the, uh, the chocolate chips. No, it definitely did. Um, let's take a step backwards for a second. Um, so you said that you brought a lot of hot sauces to these events. What got you into making hot sauces in the first place? Okay, uh, go back a few years ago. I had this coworker who wanted to have a hot pepper eating contest at work, right? So he bought a bunch of uh, ghost peppers and invited a bunch of his friends at work to, to taste them and like they filmed videos of each other. It was funny, blah, blah, blah. Okay, skip ahead of another few months. He went online and he's like, all right, what's the world's hottest pepper? What's, what's hotter than, than ghost peppers? So he bought some Carolina Reapers. Um, or at least he thought he bought Carolina Reapers. He bought the seeds. So he was like, I don't have a garden. What am I gonna do with these? Uh, these were expensive. Uh, so I was like, give me two of those skip ahead a year and a half I had a bunch of uh, Carolina Reapers had no idea what to do with them so I started googling hot sauce recipes and that's how I stumbled upon fermentation what are some tips and tricks so you said you you made a bunch of different hot sauces you scaled them according to heat and you named them all what are some tips and tricks for fermented hot sauces that you've learned over your time for me it's just like trying a bunch of different things and like I'm still in a, a very experimental phase. Uh, I'm really interested to go into next year and um, try a, uh, try to reproduce some of what I did last year. So this past year it was a lot of just combining different types of peppers, uh, working with different recipes. Like um, like I, last year I did a lot of um, like pepper mash as opposed to the like the lacto fermented like brine. Um, uh, and so I've been like trying to figure out which one I like the best and I think I'm leaning a little bit more towards the pepper mash because it's really flavorful uh, but it also really makes your apartment smell like hot peppers. Is the pepper mash a vinegar based or how do you, what's, it, what's the difference actually for somebody? It's, it's so very similar uh, you, you kind of just add some salt and like mash the peppers up I, I remove the seeds when I do that just so I could mash that up right into hot sauce when it's ready to go um, but then uh, the other way is to just just very coarsely chop the peppers, throw it into a salt brine, ferment that, and then uh, I usually drain most of the brine when I'm, and put it into a food mill uh, to create the hot sauce that way. It is a lot easier to do that, I feel like, and a lot less uh, fragrance. Uh, what are your favorite peppers that you find are most versatile or ones that you like to make stuff with? Uh, those chocolate habaneros were definitely at the top of my list. Um, they had a lot going on and they were a good level of spicy. Uh, the Carolina Reapers are fun to work with. Uh, one of my favorite hot sauces that I made last year was with uh, some of the Carolina Reapers that I grew. Plus, uh, this is actually, sorry, two years ago. Um, the Carolina Reapers plus a bunch of, um, of the world's hottest peppers from the Union Square Farmers Market made a pepper mash and it just, it's just, 
has a really good kick to it, but it's not overwhelming. It, and the, the fermentation it mellows out the spiciness in, uh, really nicely, so it makes it tolerable. Um, one last question. Uh, you said you name all of your hot sauces. What was the name of the hot sauce in the cookies? Uh, liquid Campfire. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Can I have your name and what you brought today? Sure. My name is Justin Roy Simran, and I bought, brought two kombuchas. Uh, the first one is a traditional uh, sparkling cherry, and the second one is a chrysanthemum ginger, more of a steel kombucha. You said that you have been uh, experimenting more with uh, non-caffeinated kombuchas, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was inspired by um, Noma, the, the cookbook that just came out. Um, they had a couple of kombuchas use, not using tea at all. I really like, their, uh, for example, their apple cider kombucha, which does not use the tea. Wait, so how do you get the, the like scoby to like... Uh, ferment with that is the scoby does ferment with that you can see the bubbles forming it's just that um i'm wondering if maybe you can't use a scoby for another project say so so now i have my scoby hotel and you know, i pick and pick from the scoby hotel to use for the non-tea kombuchas so the secondary fermentation on the traditional one is with cherries can you tell me a little bit about the process of that yeah that was just a traditional kombucha i think that might have been just black lipton tea and then I did the secondary fermentation using Trader Joe's cherries that I had on hand. Like um, the frozen kind. The frozen kind. Yes, yes. Do you thaw them first? No, I just added them in. I'm, I do the lazy way out. I just add them in and just let them thaw it by itself. Now, how did you start making kombucha in the first place? Um, you know, I, I've always liked fermentation and um, I like tea. And so I thought that that was a good choice. I never had a bottle of kombucha before on my own. Um, but, you know, it turns out that I liked it. And I like the fact that you can control the sourness, the sweetness, etc. How long were um, the two fermented for? Uh, they were probably, at, well, I tend to ferment my kombuchas for at least two weeks, and then the secondary on top of that, so another five days for the sparkling cherry. And you have these very nice uh, swing top lids. <laughs> yeah, those are a must. Yes, yes, for any fermentista. <laughs> have you ever had any kombucha accidents or anything? Uh, yeah, yeah. One time, and this this is a little gross, um, but I forgot to leave the um, the cloth on the kombucha, and I found some maggots. <laughs> maggots? Yeah, yeah. Some ma Some. I guess it was in the summer. Some flies had invaded my kombucha, so I had to throw away that scoby. Um, and that was during the time when I was just making one kombucha at a time, so it was my sole scoby. And so I learned my lesson there, you know. And so now that's why I have the scoby hotel. <laughs> now, you also mentioned, like, when we were doing intros in uh, at the meetup, that you make natto? Yeah, so I just started making natto. I, I love, I've loved the, the natto for years, and so I would order at the Japanese restaurants. And um, when I saw that, you know, you can make natto, um, I got a, um, an incubator, one of those broad and tailors, those small incubators uh, for my small Brooklyn apartment, and so I just started making natto. So tell me about your process in making natto and where you got like the culture for it to begin with. Yeah, I got it from Gem Cultures, where you know a lot of us, you know, turn to uh, to the West Coast to Washington State, um, and I got the uh, beans, the special smaller natto beans from Laura be Soybeans, um, and yeah, and I just incubated my broad and tailor incubator. And you cook the beans first? Yes, yes, you cook the beans first. Um, you don't have to crack the beans like you do for tempeh, but you, you, you just have to cook them until they're pretty well done, and you just spread the spores on them and just incubate them for, for quite a while. <laughs> How long? 
Um, if I remember correctly, it's around 24 to 36 hours. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's not that long, but it's just you know I want to be there uh, when you know when the the slime you know starts to form and stuff. Yeah. That's really cool. And um, how do you usually like eat your natto? Um, I, I do the traditional soy sauce with a mustard over rice, and I love to have it with a raw egg as well. <laughs> the raw egg might be a bit much for me. Oh, that's the part that's too much for you? <laughs> natto is just like, if you eat a lot of fermentations, natto is just a very fermented bean, you know? Yes, yes. No, it is, it is a little different, um, but you know, I feel like there is a lot of interest in it, especially since we have our first nacho maker in, in New York City. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, what do you, have you had any of their stuff? I have not, um, partially because I, you know, usually just get them at the restaurant. Yeah, now I make them my own, so, although they did friend me on Instagram, so. <laughs> they probably <laughs> saw that you're making, yeah. Yes, yes. Actually, um, so we heard, um, we've heard that a lot of restaurants in New York will just use kind of frozen natto, but like, what is a favorite place of yours to get natto in a restaurant? Um, you, I just order it whenever I go to any ramen shop. They usually have it as a side, and so I just get it there. But you're right that most of it is frozen. Even if you go to Japanese supermarkets, you know, you'll see that they're just literally defrosting, which is, you know, a shame. And, you know, homemade natto does taste a lot better. Fresher natto does. Yes. yes. Do you ever add any um, flavors or any spices to your natto? I haven't yet, so that's something you've given me an idea now. So <laughs> I might be obsessing over that on the way home. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you so much for, for coming. Are you going to come back to the NYC for men's group? Yeah. No, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I, I you know enjoyed myself tonight. What was the uh, the favorite thing that you ate tonight? You know, I really did like that uh, kimchi and um, kefir. That, that looked like just a regular old dip, and it just tasted just like a regular dip. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm here with Gabrielle, who has made some, some amazing vegan cheeses. Hello. How are you? Hi. I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Can you tell me a little bit about what you made tonight? Sure. Um, so I made five different vegan cheeses tonight. Three of them are cashew-based, and two of them were based with sunflower seeds. Can you tell me a little bit about your process of how you made these cheeses? What I do is I take the nuts as the base, and then I'll take some sort of inoculant as a starter, either a miso, sauerkraut juice, or sometimes I use a fermented honey. I add that, then I'll add salt and whatever flavors I'm looking to add to the cheese. And you just, do you like leave it for a certain amount of time? Oh yeah, so uh, I leave them out for a couple days. I keep stirring them every day just to check up on them, make sure nothing's going wrong with them. And then once I hit the taste and the texture that I want, I bring them to the fridge. So you brought like five different cheeses tonight. Two of them were sweet and uh, three of them were savory. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so the two sweet ones, I use cranberry, fermented cranberry honey to sweeten them. Yes, fermented cranberry honey. And then for the three savory ones, two were made with spicy peppers. And then one was made with just caraway seeds and sauerkraut brine from uh, caraway flavored sauerkraut. I have a question about the cranberry honey. Why did you use cranberry honey as Why opposed to like a regular honey? Yeah. Oh, um, so I like the flavor of the cranberry honey and I made two different batches of that. One I used cinnamon, turmeric, cranberry, and black pepper. And then in the other one I used uh, spicy peppers, lemon juice, lemon zest, just to get different flavors. And um, if you ferment the cranberries in it, they just get like a nice texture to them and also give the honey a great flavor. So that's why I went that route. It sounds like you've been working on uh, vegan cheeses for like a little while. Can you tell me about what brought you starting making uh, vegan cheeses? 
Sure. Um, I can't say I can pinpoint a specific moment when I decided that I would make them. I avoid dairy just because uh, it doesn't sit well with me. So I've tried a lot of great uh, commercial vegan cheeses and I just wanted to make it on my own. I thought it'd be better for me and that I could make all the different flavors that I wanted to play around with. Um, over the course of making vegan cheeses for however, how long have you been making vegan cheeses for? Only about four or five months. It's still a good amount of time. What's the favorite vegan cheese that you've made? Uh, I really love the spicy ones. Um, for some reason, the spicy with the tang of the ferment just is a great flavor to me. What is next for your vegan cheeses? I'm still figuring that out. Next month, come on April 1st and you can find out what I made. All right, do you make um, other kinds of ferments? Yeah, actually the ferment that I make most often is sauerkraut. I almost always have some batch of sauerkraut brewing in my apartment. What is brewing right now? Uh, right now I just have a plain batch with caraway seeds in it. Sounds very good. With um, regular green cabbage? Oh yeah, sorry. So I use regular green cabbage to make the sauerkraut. Salt and caraway seeds for this batch. Thank you so much. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. We're in the back of Fifth Hammer with the NYC Ferments Meetup Group, and I am with one of the founders, Amy. Amy, tell me what you brought today, and uh, what is the theme today? Today's theme is pickles as parts. So we encourage people to take anything that they've fermented in the past or, or is a fermented ingredient and make something bigger and better with it or more with it. Um, so what I did today was I took some um, kimchi that Elmo made for the last ferment and I very cleverly brought a jar with me and stole it from the last ferment, brought it back you this ferment. <laughs> there was a lot of it. You said 11 pounds, I think. Yes. <laughs> so I brought, I brought some of it home and I chopped it up into small pieces and I mixed it with some lebna, which is strained yogurt or kefir milk kefir um, that I just put through a coffee filter and made sort of a cheese with it or Greek yogurt is what is part of that stage also. So it's called Lepna. And I mixed it with um, his uh, kimchi and I also mixed it with a little preserved lemon because why not and that's also another ingredient. And um, made this wonderful dip that I'm serving with a sourdough rye that's just incredible. <laughs> it's very spicy and tangy and like creamy. It's like a really good combination. Well, better. That's an, an amazing mixture of things. Spicy, tangy, yummy. <laughs> exactly. Um, I have made some kefir cheeses before. Uh, tell me a little bit about your straining method. You just use a coffee filter, but like what, get into the nitty gritty about it. Um, basically, I strain my uh, yogurt and I also strain some of, sometimes I strain my kefir. Um, I'm more familiar with the yogurt straining. Um, to make Greek yogurt, you strain regular yogurt and you just take some of the whey out. And actually, I use the whey to make my next batch of yogurt, um, which is 
something that not a lot of people do. My strain seems to be very friendly and nice with doing that, and it means that I don't have to save some of my yogurt to make more yogurt, which is called back slapping. I have to say that that is kind of mind-blowing because, like, I never know what to do with whey if I'm straining yogurt or actually, or, like, anything at all. I used to strain a lot of kefir. Um, but, like, I also never save my yogurt because I just want to eat it all. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. So it's, like, a but really you can, good tip. You can do a lot of things with whey. I don't actually like mixing it with vegetables to um, make a uh, ferment just because... I think one is dairy and one is vegetable, and I don't like to cross-pollinate there. Um, but I do use the whey for a lot of other things. I, you can marinate meat with it. Um, I'm not vegan or anything like that. Um, you can marinate meat with it. You can add it to stews. Um, I also I use it sometimes in my sourdough baking. Um, you can use it instead of a liquid for your sourdough, and it just active. It activates the dough like you can't even believe. Be very careful and put it in a large container because it will bubble all over your counters. <laughs> I think I've actually used uh, kefir whey uh, when I first started making kimchi. I think I used that as like some of the kick. Mm -hmm. But um, but again, it introduces a dairy element to your vegetables, which is, you know, again, just it's just cross-pollinating a lot of different things. And I think that there are a lot of and I, I'm not so familiar with the science of the whole thing, but there are different um, bacteria in the in the dairy whey and ferments than there are in the vegetable ferments. And I just don't know if one needs the other. As yeah. Especially when you have a lot of friends who have like, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, dietary restrictions? Yes, <laughs> yes. So if you don't want to mix the dairy in, that, that there's one way not to do it. Where did you get your first, the yogurt strain that you're currently using? The yogurt strain I'm currently using, I got from somebody actually at the ferment group, who's unfortunately doesn't come any longer. We used to be in Manhattan, and uh, it was sort of a different crowd, just because we were in a different place. And now we're out in Queens, so we have a, a, a whole new crop of people, which is really wonderful and fun and exciting. Uh, but my original yogurt did come from somebody that I met through the meetup. Um, tell me about your kefir grains, actually. Um, as someone who has had kefir grains and then like let them go because they were multiplying every like 12 hours in the summer <laughs> and it was just too much to yeah. keep up with. Like I would come home after work and they would already be over fermented. Because I have a uh, mixed love-hate relationship with my kefir grains. <laughs> um, I loved my kefir grains for a very long time. They were freeze-dried freeze kefir grains that I got from a friend of mine upstate who runs a biodynamic farm, which is really interesting, and a whole other subject that we're not going to go into right now. Uh, another time, Rach. <laughs> um, and they were wonderful. They were like, I, I don't want to be politically incorrect, but they were like bringing up a... a anorexic teenager I mean they they sort of did their own thing and they 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 only reproduced they actually didn't reproduce but they made a lovely kefir there were about four grains and they just got a little bit bigger and bigger every time but not too big that it was unmanageable and they never seemed to reproduce I don't know what was sterile about them or what, <laughs> what the problem was 
um, and we had a very lovely relationship and I left them in my refrigerator for a little while because um, I was away on vacation and I came back and unfortunately I forgot about them and I ate them which is really unfortunate and really sad for me but then on the other hand I have them with me I guess forever and ever <laughs> it's like eating Part of your flora now <laughs> it's, it's like eating your own um, security blanket or something <laughs> um, so that was very sad for me and the same person did give me more kefir grains but these were not freeze-dried so they were actually they're quite prolific and they reproduce like rabbits and I I have so many I actually brought a whole jar of them today and brought gave them out to people <laughs> listeners if you need kefir grains you know who to contact yeah, come to the next meetup <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Rach. <laughs> Hello, what is your name and what did you bring tonight to the, uh, to the meetup? My name is Lynn Ripley. I brought fermented ingredients in my salsa. So the assignment for the night was to bring dishes with fermented ingredients. And I've never been particularly interested in making fermented salsas, even though such things exist, because everything then tastes the, like the same ferment. So what I wanted to do was to make a bunch of different ingredients, some of which were fermented and some of which were not, and put them together in a salsa. So that's what I did. So which of the ingredients were fermented? So the, the ingredients that were fermented included corn, two different kinds. One was ordinary table yellow corn that you used to eating in the summer or frozen in the winter. Or, and the other is uh, dried corn that uh, is purple in color and comes from South America. And I use it to make uh, tortillas. And if you're gonna make tortillas out of corn, you need to have dried corn that you then do a process called nixtamalization, which nixtamalization is a historic thing that used to be done with fire ashes, but now you can buy calcium hydroxide and do it much more easily. And uh, so you just soak the corn, you soak the corn overnight in this uh, very basic solution, and it does some chemistry on the inside of the corn. And that's why when corn was first taken to Europe, uh, people got sick from eating too much corn without uh, having done the nixtamalization because they didn't get the right uh, nutrients out of the corn. So anyway, this is nixtamalized purple corn in my salsa uh, that has then subsequently been uh, lactofermented. The yellow corn ferments faster because it's got more sugar in it. The other, uh, besides the corn, I had uh, fennel, which I had fermented in two different ways. One of which uh, was with uh, lemon and fennel seeds, and the other was with orange zest and fennel seeds. And uh, I, liked, I liked both of them, but they tasted pretty different. And then I made um, fermented onion, and the fermented onion was a purple onion that had been co-fermented with uh, sumac powder. Sumac powder is used in a lot of Mediterranean cooking. And um, 
I have in mind a project to do some sumac things in the future, and so I was experimenting with sumac, and so that's why I did that. It makes the onion very, very purple, and so I thought it was pretty. And um, the other fermented thing was jalapeno peppers, which I make all the time anyway. It's, uh, which you don't have to put, I sometimes I put onion or lemon in that, but you don't really need to put anything, it's just hot. This is good. <laughs> What's the project that you have in mind for sumac? Well, I learned that there's a, a way, when you buy sumac in the store, it's just ground into a fine powder, usually. But I discovered that uh, one brand of sumac that I found was still kind of, the berries were still kind of chunky. I think they'd been cracked open enough that uh, the seed could come out, but the, they were otherwise kind of big pieces. And um, so I, it was called cured sumac, so I looked up to see what cured sumac was. And it, it says it was salt cured. That's all I could find. And so I figured that's sort of like, like when you make uh, uh, cured lemon for Mediterranean things. This is all Mediterranean. And when you taste sumac, sometimes that's commercially produced, it tastes salty, like they put salt in it. So the salt may have carried over. But my idea is then just to coarsely grind it as opposed to fine, finely grind it and, and use it for kinds of things where that's appropriate. That sounds really exciting. Now you were saying uh, during the intro that uh, you make a lot of lacto-fermented uh, vegetables and you're trying to experiment with making new flavors because a lot of it, like if you have a salt brine, if you just make something in a plain salt brine, it tastes the same. So what are some of the flavors that you're adding aside from the, uh, the lemon and the fennel? Um, with the, well, I had the lemon and the orange and the fennel. I have done um, salted, uh, smoked salt which makes then a sm more smoky brine. Like as part of the brine instead yeah. of regular? Wow. Uh, so, so you get a, a more, I don't think that, you know, I don't think you get a different flavor compared to putting smoked salt on that, but you, you don't usually put salt on pickles because they're already way too salt. <laughs> um, so, um, I almost always put, um, things that are going to go into some kind of vegetable mix. I almost always put some peppers or something hot into it. Cinnamon sticks are a good thing. Uh, black, peri, bla, black pepper berries are good things. Allspace spice is a good thing. And I'm just start, starting to figure out which things go best with which other things to my taste buds and uh, experimenting then what happens when you start putting these differentially flavored things together with each other. That's going to be really exciting. Uh, so aside from your sumac uh, experiment, uh, what, what is uh, the next ferment that you are thinking about making? Um, actually, I do a lot more experiments than fermenting. So <laughs> I'm, not trying, I'm struggling with thinking about um, uh, what what I'm doing, what I'm going to do that's a ferment. Uh, but what other food experiments then aside from the sumac? Uh, one, thing, one thing that maybe, maybe your uh, podcast could help me with, I discovered that uh, a recipe in which I was making a fill, filling for cookies. 
and it called for tablespoon amounts, I mean, significant amounts of instant tea powder. And I'm wondering whether there's anything different than just grinding up your own tea, whatever your favorite flavor of tea leaves. I, I have no idea. I've never seen it before. I've got to, I've got to go do a search on this. <laughs> what I can think of is, um, well, you know, bubble tea, boba tea? Yeah. They use usually a tea powder in that, so maybe it's something similar? Well, I mean, you can easily buy instant tea, but the point of this is not the sugar in, in some instant, I mean, this was not called, didn't call for instant sugar. It was, the, the cookies were what was cool, though. These cookies were... For matcha, you think? Uh, were shaped like peaches and then colored on the outside to look like a peach by twirling them in jello powder of different colors. <laughs> so anyway, that's as far as I've gotten with that experiment. Well, thank you so much for, for this interview. All right, we are in the back of Fifth Hammer talking with some of the New York City fermenters, and here we have Emily, uh, who I've heard has a sauerkraut saga. What is the sauerkraut saga? Okay, so the sauerkraut saga, um, so I moved to New York about a year ago. I was coming from Germany. I was living in Germany for the last six years. Got very fond of sauerkraut while I was in Germany. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted some sauerkraut while I was here. So I brought my jars with me from Germany. Um, and I looked up some recipes on how to make sauerkraut. Now, the thing is, if you look up recipes on Google or whatever um, for how to make sauerkraut, most of the recipes say things like, okay, you know, you ferment it for 10 days or two weeks or maybe three weeks at the most. And then they all say that you have to refrigerate it because they say, oh, it'll get soggy or mushy if you don't or something like that. Um, and I did not have the facilities to be refrigerating this stuff. Uh, I, I made... Um, I think I bought a 1.8 bushel um, box of cabbage, and I, I didn't have enough space in my, well, I like sauerkraut, and I didn't have enough space in my fridge for that much sauerkraut. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of cabbage. Yeah, it's a lot, it was, uh, I, think, I think it was 40-something pounds. How many cabbages is that? Oh, I didn't count. God. <laughs> that many, that many. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, refrigeration was not an option, and I live in an apartment in New York City, so I don't have like a root cellar or you know something to store the <laughs> sauerkraut. Just leave it outside in the snow. Yeah. Well, it was May, <laughs> so <laughs> not an option. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, it was May. I had just moved into my apartment. I did not have air conditioning yet, and I live on the top floor of my building, so it gets hot up there. Um, so uh, what I was doing was I was exper experimenting to see exactly what you can do with sauerkraut so it doesn't get mushy. Um, what happens if you leave it out beyond that three weeks? Because um, I figured, you know, people 150 years ago, they didn't have refrigeration, but they did have cellars. So I wasn't sure exactly what the, you know, how that was going to work. Um, so I made my sauerkraut uh, with my friend Raish, and um, I put it in these uh, stoneware crocks, and... Um, weighed it down with um, the, the weights and you know as you would do in a stoneware crack yeah exactly and um, and then let it to uh, ferment uh, in my kitchen in my 90 plus degree kitchen <laughs> um, and actually it came out great so that it was really interesting so I I think it was about eight jars or so eight jars big 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 jars yeah um, 
And jars one and two were fantastic. I start eating them after about two, two and a half months of fermentation. Um, fermentation for sauerkraut. Yeah, yeah, this was nowhere close to that whole seven days, ten days, two weeks thing that you read online. No, no, this was like two, over two months. Um, uh, it was fantastic. It was like, you know, how you, you, uh, if you're into like fine cheeses and you like the like aromas and the slight after flavors and stuff of fine cheeses, this sauerkraut was totally on that level. It was, it was that good. Cheese of sauerkraut. Yeah, yeah. It was a, totally the cheese of sauerkraut. So the first two jars came out fantastic. I finished them up after about four months or so. Uh, then I got to jar number three, and jar number three was terrible. It was mushy. It just disintegrated. You couldn't even like use a fork to scoop it out because it went. It would disintegrate into a, just this mush. It was. It was terrible. I had to throw the whole thing out. Um, I think what happened was that I did not properly, um, precisely weigh out my kraut compared to the amount of salt I was using. And I think each jar ended up with a slightly different amount of salt. Um, so jar three I had to throw out, um, and I think jar number five I had to throw out. Um, and then at least one of those jars started developing, um, it got, it, a normal thing with sauerkraut is you can develop the, the white, uh, yeah, on top, exactly. Um, uh, but one of those jars I let go so long <laughs> that um, I was unable to scrub off the yeast. Off the, like I was like, scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing the jar with hot water and soap. I, I couldn't get rid of it. I mean, it was it was flat, but there was still a white streak where there it was. So um, every month I've been coming in and telling the group my latest uh, saga about like, well, guys, I was scrubbing this stoneware jar and I cannot get this white streak off. Or, you know, hey, guys, what, are, what how come some of these are mushy and some of them came out great and stuff? So tonight I finally I bring in uh, a sample from jar number four, which was all right. It wasn't the fine cheese level that jars one and two were. But um, it was still decent. Uh, it had a it had a good crunch on the sauerkraut. I was told it tasted surprisingly mild and, and uh, kind of like it had only been fermenting for maybe a week or two at the longest. Uh, but it's been I don't know what nine months now or so. Wow, that's really impressive. So you think the the secret was the crocs? What's it? You think the secret to keeping them cooler was the crocs? I don't know. I I'm not sure why other people's crowd so systematically goes mushy that they feel they have to use the refrigerator. I'm not sure if they also are mismeasuring their salt um, or if, I, I, I don't know. So now that you uh, are have gone through the jars, uh, what is next in your sauerkraut saga? Ooh, ooh. Um, I'm going to make more sauerkraut <laughs> because I love sauerkraut and I, I really want to nail down, I want to get that fine cheese nuanced sauerkraut again. Um, um, I'm going to be more precise with the salt this time. Uh, my apartment now does have air conditioning, so I don't know how that's going to impact the process. You might just have to turn it off to make these good sauerkrauts. I might. I might. I mean, you know, if, if it's the choice between air conditioning and fine cheese flavored sauerkraut. Oh. April 1st will be Foolish Ferment. So Foolish inspired by Joey. Joey. <laughs> Who with fooled us with something that looked like it was going to be sweet and came out spicy <laughs> and is wonderful. We are encouraging everybody to do the same for April Fool's Day. Come out with something deceptive, something tricky for April Fool's Day. Some magical trickery. Whatever you come up with, you know, over the course of the month. We're not, we, we actually don't have any other ideas aside from, aside from, 
spicy chocolate chip cookies, which are delicious. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.